0: everyone and welcome to sipping on country i am super excited to have mr tommy harden here with us today hello studio musician tory musician every, everything under the sun um, you can tell the studio part because he walked into the studio and we ended up on a half an hour talk about equipment most of which went over my head
1: it's uh it's addictive it is basically I you create a hole and you pour money into it. That's what a studio is. That's,
0: that's the music industry in general, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we we have a joke. How do you make a million dollars in the music industry? You start with five.
0: There you go. Yeah. There you go. So, basically, with a podcast, I want to I want to sit and find out a bit about you know all the stuff behind the music you know you've obviously toured with a lot of big names and people go see the show they see you know they see that person singing they've paid tickets to see the name and and a lot of people don't really think about what goes into everything behind it you know and what brings what brings you to where you are today so i mean you you came to nashville in the 90s right Mm -hmm.
1: moved here in 91 and uh immediately within four months got uh, somehow talked my way onto a a gig with a Grammy award-winning group, uh, Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin brothers. And I did it uh, because, uh, sorry, I hear my mouth. Um, And I did it because a friend of mine that was a songwriter here uh, had hired Eddie Bears and knew Eddie Bears, and so he said, you know, you're a drummer, you should go hang out with Eddie Bears for a couple of days, and I can set that up. So he set that up, and Eddie graciously let me tag along with him, bless his heart, you know, he, far more patience than <laughs> than I have, and um, he, uh, I was able to, I, I had a little demo of just my playing, and I gave it to him, and he actually listened to it, and so he uh got called for some live stuff around town that that he was just far too busy to even contemplate doing and so he's like you know and this has actually happened to me you know now and it's like your 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 mind goes to the last person that you hung out with oh tommy yeah so so eddie called me and said hey uh call this guy he's, he needs a drummer for saturday night he this guy and so eddie sort of recommended me and so uh when uh, it's, a fun, it's such a funny story because I had heard Barbara Mandrell was looking for a drummer. And so I had a Modern Drummer magazine, and they're you know, about Randy Wright, and he was, the, he was the drummer for Barbara Mandrell. So this is back before, before you wouldn't even remember because you probably weren't even born then. But uh, when you wanted to call somebody, you'd pick up the, the white pages and look, oh, Randy Wright, there's his number. So I literally cold called him and uh his he he had started a management company and his partner had picked up the phone and i said hey i'm i heard barbara mandrill's looking for a drummer i'm a new drummer in town i'm looking for a gig and he said well that's already been filled but tell me you tell me about yourself what you know what do you well you know i've done this and this and this I, but i'm 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 new to town and he said uh, you know i've got a guy that's looking for a drummer uh have you played for anybody else in town I said no, but Eddie Bears has been recommending me, which he was. He, he had right and he went, oh okay well that's all I need to hear so unbeknownst to me Steve Gatlin had called him one hour before and said, my drummer's quitting help me find a drummer Wow and it was just it was you know it was a god thing so uh, the uh, so literally he said, well, let's get together tomorrow uh, so we got together he hooked me up with Steve Steve literally. Uh, pulled out a cassette. This is how long ago it was. He circled these songs. Here, learn these. And uh, bus leaves at blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and literally my first time even playing with these guys. No rehearsal. The first time playing was opening up for Kenny Rogers at wow. the Minneapolis Ice Hockey Arena, which seated about 6,000 people. Wow. And, and they had never heard me play. And, if I'd have been terrible, they would have been screwed royally. <laughs> so, but it turned out great, and I toured with them, uh, made more money that year, it blew my mind. I was like, "Wow, this is this you can really make money in the music <laughs> business." And then came the end of the tour. Then they were done. I'm right. back to not working. So, but but that that got me started, and and to to this day on every podcast i've ever done i've always thanked eddie bears for uh and we talk every week he's he's such a such a wonderful wonderful person and i've turned him on to to certain drums that he didn't know about before and and you know now like the joyful noise company i i endorse those guys and i was working one day at um at legends which is now you know uh it's not it's not legends anymore uh, but I was working on a Thursday and I had to go out of town uh, doing gigs for the weekend, and I had to work there again on Monday. So I left a snare drum there, and I said, "I said e- Eddie, you got to try the snare drum out. It's my favorite snare drum." And I'm just going to leave it in the drum room. And he was going to be there Friday, the next day. So and and to this day, he goes, "You're the one that turned me on to this." <laughs> so anyway,
0: I, I love that. I mean, I think a lot of A lot of the music industry, you know, it's perseverance and and really getting your name out there. But I mean, with that, there's also that huge element of luck because, you know, and it just so happened that, I mean, you were doing your due diligence in contacting people. But like if he hadn't have called, then, you know, who knows how that may or may not have turned out.
1: It's, 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 uh, what, what is the acronym for luck? Uh, it's, uh laboring under correct knowledge or something like that. Okay. It's basically you're working as hard as you can and the, the harder you're working and the more lines you're throwing in the water, something eventually is going to bite. Right. And and the I remember hearing a story about Elton John. Uh, he said it took him eight years to get a record deal. And basically everybody that was kind of in the running to try to get a record deal, by the time the eight years was over, he was the only one left. Wow. And, and it's this Nashville, and I tell people Nashville is not a six month town. It's not a two years town. It's a 10 year town because it takes, it's a very small community of people. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows each other. And if a, if you're hard to get along with, it won't take long. You, you will work yourself out of the business. Yeah. Um, but you've got to be great. You've got to have the chops and have uh, musical knowledge, and you've also got to be able to bring something to the table. If you bring something to the table just like the guy that's been doing it for 10 years longer, then why would they go with you? Right. But if you bring something completely new to the table and something that they've never seen before and something that no one else can do, then you're the guy. So and and so it's just a matter, honestly, of, and, and it's a people business. You've got to know... Get to know people. Got to be nice to people. You never take anybody for granted, because the 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 you know you walk into a studio and the there's an intern there and he's like, can I get you some coffee? That guy, if you kind of you know are uppity and sneer at him or whatever, that guy will probably will, will probably be running a, an A and R position right. in five years. You yeah. just never know.
0: You really don't in this town. It's it's wild. Yeah. So. You came into town. You pretty much immediately got that gig. Um, once that finished, like, kind of where we where were you at? I mean, did did things just kind of roll on from there? No,
1: or? no. It was it was like the door slammed at the end of it. It was their adios tour, which is, it was their farewell tour, which is hilarious because anybody that any artist that's ever done a farewell tour, we always joke and say, is that your first or second farewell tour? Because basically, when they once they stop. About six months later, they're like, "I'm really bored. I got to get back out." <laughs> you know,
0: musicians can't stop. It's no, just, it's, it's it's not a job. It's a it's in it's your a, blood. It is, you know? It's in your
1: blood. So, um, I I ended up uh, just really struggling for about a year, uh, and uh, we ended up. My wife and I uh, ended up getting pregnant, and you know, uh, we have six kids. So. Out of the six kids, one of them was planned, <laughs> and that was number five, <laughs> and that was going to be our last one. That shows you how good our plans work. So, um, and so I was just kind of going around, and there was this there was this club that uh, it was at the Hall of Fame uh, Hotel, and they had a bar there, and they had a band, uh, and a lot of really famous studio musicians <clears throat> came up in this band. And and you would just kind of find out where all these little jams and stuff were, and all these other musicians were, and the writers, and you just go and shake hands and meet people and just slowly get to know them. And so I uh, I would go to this Hall of Fame thing and just sit in, and people would always come up afterwards, you know, you know, man, great pocket, you know, great great feel, and I'd be like, awesome, I need a gig. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. <laughs> I'd be thinking that, you know, right. thought bubble, yes. That's not helping me pay me. my bills. Hi me, hi <laughs> me. <laughs> so, uh, so, and the drummer was Mike Kennedy and another, uh, Nashville angel that helped a lot of people. Uh, Mike was the drummer for George Strait. Uh, he was, uh, he was Ricky Skagg's drummer for a long time. And then he, uh, he was George Strait's drummer, just playing these massive arenas everywhere. Uh, but Mike is one of those guys, he just knew everything that was going on in town. Who was looking, you know, who was getting ready to get fired, whatever, blah, blah. He Mike knew. He he just always had his ear to the ground. And so I went, I, I saw him one night. He's like, hey, Tommy, how you doing? I'm like, I must have had this look on my face of panic. And he's like, what's wrong? And I went, we just found out we're having our first kid. I need a gig really bad. <laughs> and so... <laughs> He said, let me work on that. And uh, so two weeks later, he walks up to me, and, and he literally nonchalantly, like it was nothing, he goes, oh, yeah, uh, I got you an audition with Ricky Skaggs. I'm like, okay, awesome. I'll go, I'll go start Woodshed and Ricky Skaggs songs. So I ended up auditioning against Buster Phillips, and Buster Phillips was a big-time studio drummer, he played on all the Millsap hits. He played on Smoky Mountain Rain. Wow. And, uh, so, uh, and, and you know, thank the good Lord above, I ended up getting that gig. And I and I played in Ricky's band for three years. And Ricky, playing in Ricky's band, you've got to kind of be, uh, he doesn't just hire average middle-of-the-road players. He kind of looks for super chop guys. Right. So, when you get in Ricky's band, it's almost like, okay, Nashville has in, endorsed you now. Okay. You know, because when I was in his band, we had, you know, Brian Sutton was in the band, uh, Mark Fain, uh, uh, Jason Sellers, who most people don't even know, he's an unbelievable bass player, uh, and uh, Keith Sewell, and uh, Joe Manuel, all these, like, super, super pickers. Uh, so, that I did that for three years, and just really, really had a blast, and... At the end of the gig, I was walking out the door one day and my daughter was old enough to run up and wrap her arms around my leg and go, don't go, Papa. And I always had my, I wanted my kids to call me Papa instead of Dad. So don't leave, Papa. And I went, it's time to get off the road. So I, we, my wife and I sat down and we figured out, okay, it's, it's time to, I want to do studio work and it's time to, so at the end of that, I got off the road and I just went around to every studio in town and started telling them, um, I'm off the road now I'm doing studio stuff full time. So put me on the, put me on the bottom of your list. I don't care. Just put me on your list. And, um, and it, and it, it was probably six months of doing that every week, you know, just, you know, kind of being a pain in the butt. And uh, again, persistence, you know, you gotta be persistent. And, uh, uh, this one studio started calling me and it it was one of these, we call them demo mills where basically their entire workload is a writer will come in and do five songs and demo them and then they'll take them, pitch them. And so they'll just do, do, you know, a lot of these demo mills, you know, They'll do, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten sessions a week of just demos. And and uh, this was back before everybody had their own studio at home and back before everybody had, you know, so you had to go there and you had to get real guys to play it. Um, and fortunately, this one studio named Texana, um, uh, they started calling me and they started and I, and I was probably the fourth on the list. I, I, I was like, I didn't care. I, I just I want to work. And so I did that for about two and a half years, and I kept waiting for it to really kick into high gear, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, it would it would kind of it'd, it'd be like the engine with a little bit of water in the gas, you know. It'd go, hm, you, hm. you know, it it would it would go, and then it would sputter, and then it would go, and then sputter So I'd have three sessions in a week, and then I'd have one session the next week, and then I'd have four sessions in a week, and then I have no no sessions the next week. And it would be like, when is this ever going to kick in? And finally, I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, it was a week in July. Boom. I had like 12 sessions that week. And from that week on, it it never stopped. Wow. For like 13 or 14 years straight, it was 500 sessions a year. That's,
0: that's a whole lot of sessions. It's a lot
1: of sessions. A lot. I mean, it was just, honestly, I could have worked six, uh, seven days a week if I wanted to. Wow. But I really tried to... Uh, uh, and, and I was warned by, uh, some good hearted people, uh, you know, don't let the music business destroy your marriage because it, it can. Right. So we, we, uh, you know, I really tried to, uh, you know, spend as much time with my wife, you know, we go out on dates and stuff and, and, uh, you know, especially with kids. And, and I would, when I would come home, I would really try to get engaged, um, you know, changing diapers and whatnot. We had, we had uh, uh, having six kids. We had a child in diapers. One of the six kids was in diapers for fifteen years straight. Well, not one of them, but we had a kid in right. diapers for fifteen years straight. <laughs> right. Fifteen years of changing diapers. <clears throat> so, and I remember the uh, the uh, the day that we potty trained our last our last kid we were like we should throw a party now we're too tired <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i think trying to find that balance between because i mean like we mentioned briefly earlier that like music is not it's not a job you know for the majority of people um playing and that being that entertainer it is a passion as much as your relationship is a passion so trying to just draw the line on oh well you know i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna go play drums or like oh i need to because you love it, right? You love it, and you want to do more. And I think. Oh, that's... I could.
1: My wife says, if if I didn't tell you to stop working in the studio, I I would be there like eighteen hours a day. Wow. Because you just, I just, you know, it time time just whizzes right by, mm. and uh, it's just what you love to do, and uh, it's not work. Right. You know it's only work when you go to a session and there's really, really horrible songs. <laughs> and then, then, then it's work. So,
0: so from moving from that tour, from the tour life to that studio life, I mean, was that something you enjoyed? Like, had you done studio work prior to? to I, had a, I had done,
1: I had done, you know, sessions on and off. And, uh, I, like I got to play my first big record in town was in 1995. I was still in the room with Ricky, uh, that Rodney Crow produced. And, I had no business being in the room with these guys. Uh, it was Michael Rhodes and Stuart Smith and Tony Harrell and uh, uh, I mean, just uh, A Team, Ultra A Team guys. And and I, I held my own. Um, I, I was actually played one of the songs for my 16 year old a couple of days ago, uh, and I, I I think I sounded pretty good. It was one song that I was really unhappy with, but. Uh, you know, I was green. I, di- I didn't really know, you know, the playing live and playing in the studio is a completely different discipline. Uh, in li- you can get away with stuff live that you can never get away with in the studio. Right. In the studio, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole nother mindset and a whole nother discipline. And, and if you play in the studio, like you do live, your tracks will be unusable. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, I I loved it. I I absolutely loved doing studio work, and uh, and I did that uh, probably another th- when it when it kicked into high gear. It was probably I don't remember when it was, but I had another couple three years where I I was just I was just you know living living large, you know, doing a lot of a lot of session work. And then I was on I was doing a uh, Tim Rushlow record. I remember. And it was at Malloy Boys, and uh, Jimmy Nichols was was on the session, and he just got off his phone, and he hung up the phone. And he goes, "You want to go out with Reba?" And I went, "No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got off the well, road. I'm I, done. I'm done." I, you know, I it, it it, and and he said, uh, he said, "Oh, come on, it's Reba." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know she's a legend and everything, but no, no," and I just said, "No." not interested and he goes oh come on and i said no not interested and he said it's only for six weeks you can you can fudge your way through six weeks you can you know just tell it tell her you're booked and i went oh, yeah no no and then he he said how much we would be making in six weeks and i went oh my god well, maybe <laughs> honey you're gonna miss me so
0: out on the road with reba as Many people who may or may not know your name, hopefully do know your name. They'll know that that six weeks lasted a little longer.
1: <laughs> it six weeks turned into fourteen years. Um, I never thought I would be in anybody's van for fourteen years. Uh, I never thought that anyone could tolerate me for fourteen years. Um, it 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 was interesting though, and it was it was again, you know, the good Lord's timing, um, because. In 2001, session players did not go out doing country gigs. Now, a session player will go out and do a Mark Knopfler gig or, uh, you know, uh, Crosby, Stills, you know, one of these big rock and roll gigs. Right. And that elevates your fame in the session world. But in the session world back then, if, if a Nashville session player went out on the road with a Nashville country artist then people got the impression that, well, their work must be down. So, and their work must be down. So I probably shouldn't hire him, you know? And so it would, it would actually hurt your work. Huh. And so I basically for six weeks, I'd be like, oh man, I'm booked that day. can can is there another day you can do? And, um, I didn't tell him I was booked in Nebraska. I just, you know, I just said, <laughs> just I just said I was booked. So anyway, that ended and that was 2001, and that was the Girl's Night Out tour. So it was Martina and Sarah Evans and Carolyn Don Johnson and somebody else I can't remember who uh, it was it was a massive tour. And um, So she took Reba took off two years after that to do her TV show right and, she, uh, and then wanted to start touring again around oh3 or 04 or something like that. And so asked us to come back. And by then, the whole Napster thing had happened. It was pre-Spotify, but all of a sudden, people are starting to stream. Incomes are starting to come down for yeah. for music. All the record companies are starting to buy each other and cannibalize each other. And the publishing companies are doing the same thing. So instead of now having... Thirty publishing companies in town. Now you've got six publishing companies, and all the work just slowly does this. And guys that that ten years prior would have never even considered doing a Nashville road gig. I'm getting phone calls from, hey, if that Reba thing ever opens up, you know, right. Um, And so and so the whole industry changed, and now it's it's normal for a session guy to do to do sessions all week and then Thursday night or Friday night go climb on a bus and go do right. you know Keith Urban or Little Big Tad or whoever and then get off on a bus. And that so that became my life from two thousand one on. And it was literally get on a bus, go play in an arena or three or four, come home and literally get off a bus and get in the car and drive straight to the studio.
0: Right. And I mean were you touring when for that second half, when you guys kind of all came back, was that mainly weekends, or were you pretty much out for the majority of the week?
1: Uh, Reba would she would only do about forty dates a year at that time. Okay, um, and so it was generally, uh, uh it was generally sometimes it would be a, a a one or two week block of time, but generally it was like you know a few dates here, three or four in a row, and then you know. Uh, and of course, Alabama, uh, I've been with Alabama since 2017. They, they like to go out, do a show, do a show, and come home. So they do two shows in, in okay. a row. So And, and all, almost all of theirs is on the weekend. So, you know, that works beautifully for a session. You know, there's, there's a few session players in the band, and, uh, and it works beautifully for our schedules. Most of the
0: time, I mean, you have done obviously you've had your touring stuff, but you have done a lot of studio work, um, and played on a lot of very no, notable songs that I know a lot of people would know. I mean, just name drop, let's throw throw some of them out there.
1: Oh, let me see, you know, every time I go to do that, my mind goes blank, <laughs> of course. Um, played on uh, ACM cma song of the year, I Drive Your Truck, Lee Bryce, and Hard to Love, which I think is his most streamed song, I think. That may have changed by now. Uh, Played on the first four Justin Moore records uh, and all his number ones, Small Town USA, If Heaven Weren't So Far Away, a bunch of those hits. Uh, Kit Moore, uh, uh, Beer Money, uh, Something About a Truck, Uh, James Otto, Girl Just Got Started Loving You, was on the charts for 120 weeks.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And that was, that's a great story about that song. That, they had nine songs cut and they literally needed to go in and cut one more song on the record. And so he called uh, D. Vincent Williams and Jim Femino and said, um, and said, can we just, uh, we just need to, it's like on a Sunday afternoon, I just need to write a quick song for this record. And so that's the song they came up with and uh, and so james Otto was is a brilliant brilliant singer uh, played on reba stuff played on uh, uh jack ingram stuff uh played on uh played on an entire alan jackson record which i i couldn't even understand why i was there because you know eddie always plays on those records and um uh, uh that uh, that record's called angels and alcohol and uh uh we, we cut it in two days, and then... So I called the production assistant about a year later, and I said, I said, hey, did I make the record? He said, you were the record. That was the record. We, <laughs> we didn't do any more. That was it. So, um, and stuff recently uh, that I've had a chance to do, just, just kind of oddball stuff. Uh, I got to play on a record for Linda Carter, who's Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Wonder Woman. And then... Uh, I did uh Johnny Mathis did a New Christmas record last year and I got to play on that. I got to stir soup.
0: I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go listen to that one now.
1: Um uh, lot of people in even in town don't know that I was a big band drummer for seven years. Okay. Um and so uh and I can read. If anybody hires drummers that in notation, I can read like crazy. He's so your guy. He is your guy. I, I can read. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I did uh, Johnny Mathis, and they had gone out and cut his vocals with this wicked piano player at Capitol Records with just the piano and a click track. And, uh, and uh, so he went in and cut, like, a bunch of songs. Uh, and I'm listening to the vocals. So we, we cut to the vocals, so they, they, he he didn't come here. We, you know, we we just cut to his vocals. But I'm sitting there, you know, doing this brushy s- soup stirring. We call it stirring the soup, and listening just because every year I've got a classic Christmas playlist that I've listened to for 20 years, and Johnny Mathis is all over that. You of, know,
0: of course, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, he's a he's a legend.
0: He. And when it comes to Christmas music, I mean, he is a guy to To me, that would be you know? like
1: playing on a Frank Sinatra record or playing on a Tony Bennett record or something like that. So, um, yeah. So, uh, And then I just got a chance to play uh, about two months ago on uh, one of my heroes when I was coming up in college was a, a, a Christian artist by the name of Rust Taff. And Rust Taff is just... If you if you want to know who Rust Half has influenced, go listen to a Rust Half record, then go listen to a Kings of Leon record. I probably shouldn't say that. When I first heard Kings of Leon, I went, "It sounds like Rust Half singing with a band." Wow. So, huh. um, anyway, Rust Half was he was the he and Amy Grant were the two biggest artists in in Christian music in the '80s. So, uh, a friend of mine just produced straight-ahead big band swing Christmas record and I got to play on four tracks on that and oh my gosh does it sound freaking freaking awesome so that I can't wait for that one to come out
0: and when do you know when it's gonna be released
1: I don't no. I don't I think th- I think they've done like a pre-release just to, you know to sell a couple of shows but um, it's uh, it's gonna be uh, uh, coming out soon I think so okay. hopefully
0: Nice. And then, I mean, for all your, your studio, your touring stuff, um, you also have your own band that you go around, you you sing, you play. Well, that's how we guitar. met. That is how we met.
1: Because <laughs> we like to go to the UK. I do. And do shows. And I learned that all the phrases in the UK have to go up.
0: <laughs> Everything's a question. Yes.
1: <laughs> Tommy. <Tell me. laughs>
0: you do have probably the best British accent of, of most of the people that I've met,
1: which is... <laughs> Yeah, well, most people from the UK laugh at my accent. You know, they go, don't <laughs> do that. And I'm like, okay. But I haven't had
0: everyone else's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife literally, and he, and, I, uh, so a friend of mine who is a number one hit songwriter, her quote for my wife is, her name's Lori. She, uh, the, the writer, uh, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, she wrote, and still, um, she said, um, Lori's the best singer in Nashville, period. And and I'm like, you're not telling me anything I don't know.
0: I was hey, I can speak to that. I've seen you guys live several she times. She um,
1: just has this really uh, deep, chocolatey voice. Uh, uh, she can hit n- notes down where I sing. That's 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 why our duo's... Uh, work so well because I sing up in the stratosphere Mm -hmm. I sing really really high because I I grew up listening to Sting and the police and that's how I learned to sing and um and then she can she can hit notes almost as low as me but she's got a crazy top range as well and um so we started writing songs um kind of for ourselves and um the the one of the first songs that broke out, um, so we, uh, I I was working at Moose uh, Jim Moose Brown, who wrote It's Five O'clock Somewhere. I was working at his studio up in Good, Goodlitzville and I picked up a guitar and started strumming. I was like, Ooh, what is this?" And he said, "Oh, that's that's in Dadgad." And I'm like, "Oh, well, sh-, you know." He showed me a couple of chords, and so I was like, "Oh, this is so cool!" So I learned, you know like to work my way up the scale and then so my wife was wanting to write for her record and it was one of those days where i'd worked all day long and she's like come on let's let's go write come on i know you're tired come on let's just do it so we went downstairs and i so i picked up the guitar and i tuned it to dad gad and i said check this out and i literally just started playing and this song came out I don't know where it came from. It just, you know, the window opened up up there and it downloaded. And at the end of it, I went, wow, that was pretty good. And she said, she has the ability to hear a song and tell you what it's about. Right. So she's other than being an empath and she knows when I'm mad, when I'm trying not to act mad and she, she knows your emotions without you, you know, it's, it's weird but she also can go, no, that song is really more. She 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 locks into the emotional impact of a song. And she's like, okay, well, it this song is that. And so she literally looked at me and she said, That's a duet between a soldier's wife and a policeman's wife. And I went, What?
0: It's very specific.
1: And I went wow, that's a great idea. Because, you know, as a songwriter, and you know as a songwriter, the, the technique of writing a song, of writing a, a lyric, and the technique of writing melodies is not the... I mean, it, it's, it's difficult, and it's a learning curve. Yeah. But the hardest one to me is getting the idea. If you have an idea and you know where that song's going to end up, in three hours, we'll have a hit song. Right. So, or, or a good song. you know. I haven't had a hit song yet, but. Um, so, we called uh, a buddy of mine, Don Rollins, who he's, he uh, wrote Five O'Clock Somewhere with Moose. Um, and uh, I said, Don, we got this idea for a song and we need you. So, he comes out literally the next day. We wrote the song in three hours and it was called Sleeping With a Telephone. Um, Don's, I played the work tape for Don's publisher and he flipped. He said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. He said, I'll pay for it, bring in a band. And and uh, so literally I got on the phone that day and, and hired a band for the next morning. We came in and we played it in, in my studio. And, um... Uh, So Lori sang one of the duets and Joanna Janae sang the other one. And uh, we literally mixed it in like a day. I mean, this whole thing like was done in a day and a half. And I thought, boy, if anybody could knock this out, it's Reba could knock it out. So I emailed it to Reba. She never opened up the email because, you know, I found out later her first thought is, Oh my God! My drummer sending me songs. How bad can it be? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like smelly cat, smelly cat, and those kind of songs. So um, the uh, so at the same time, I, I sent, I emailed it to uh, to uh, uh, Don's publisher. So Don's publisher sends it to. Uh, Oh, what was his name? He's a plugger at Warner Chapel, but he used to plug at Starstruck, which is Reba's company. And so he had just come from Reba's company to Warner Brothers. So he sent him this song. He lost his mind. Uh, He sent the song to Trish McClanahan, which is Reba's assistant. She lost her mind. So Trish sends it to Reba. And Reba says, you know, I think I've got it in my email right here. And so she plays it for Reba. Reba lost her mind. She sent us three emails that day. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't play this for anybody. I want this. I want this. I want this. So uh, three and a half weeks later, they end up cutting the song. Wow. Uh, And she did the duet with Faith. And it was supposed to be a single. I'm not going to get into the politics of all that. Uh, It's a
0: whole other whole other side of the industry
1: anybody that's a songwriter has had a long list of near misses so we've had many near misses and um, so that was uh, and and so Lori and I started writing for Lost Hollow and uh, we write a lot with other people and then we write a lot by ourselves and we've done four records now. And we go to the UK quite a bit. where we did up until... Uh, we were supposed to go 2020. So here's another story, which you uh, may not know about. Um, so the same guy that produced the uh, Johnny Mathis stuff produced a record on Rumor. You know okay. Rumor.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so Rumor's this uh, wonderful British artist who's got this Karen carpenter alto just... Another chocolatey, velvety, beautiful, beautiful voice. Oh my gosh!
0: Couldn't have, couldn't have explained it better myself. It's,
1: it's, yes, yeah, just, it's just like wrapping up in a warm blanket when you hear her sing, and um, so we spent a couple of days making rumors record. So, at the same time, uh, and I and I try not to mix Lost Hollow with my studio world. I try not to use the studio world to get lost hall of work and, and I don't do that because right. uh, that's a uh, conflict of interest um, but at the same time uh, this woman named Lisa Quinn was in town do you know Lisa Quinn she has UK country news dot it's, it's like an Instagram it's big, okay. big big massive Instagram Our
0: paths may well have crossed
1: yeah UK country news so um, I think that's what it's called uh, and Lisa if that's wrong please forgive me um, so she's like is there a session I can come to I'm like I we're, we're recording Rumor. And she's like, oh, that's perfect. I've, I've always wanted to meet Rumor because I've been wanting to interview her. So she came and hang... So they got along like a house on fire. I mean, they were inseparable for the whole... for that day. But at the same time, Lisa then told uh, Rumor about Lost Hollow. And so Rumor went home and... Uh, and the next thing I know, Rumor wanted us to sing on every song, <laughs> and, like, and, and the producer said, "Whoa, Horsey!" You know. So we ended up singing on three songs, and we okay. sang on the first single. Uh, uh, on this record, this record was a Hugh Presswood songbook. This was all Hugh Presswood songs, just genius songs. It's a song called "Bristlecone Pine," and uh, on that one, it, it, that one says featuring Lost Hollow. And that was the first single. So we had a a plan the following year. We were going to go to the UK. We were going to open up for Rumor. And then Lori and I were going to be in her band. I was going to play drums and sing, and Lori was going to sing. And then, you know, the whole...
0: The pandemic and the rest is history on that one. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so that that kind of... uh, And that record, if you've never heard that record, do yourself a favor and go listen to that record. I will, uh,
0: I'll make sure I put links to all this in the, in the YouTube stuff and in the, the the podcast bit. So people can go check it out.
1: Yeah. So we, uh, we, we are still trying to do lost hollow. It's, it's, it's really weird because people move to Nashville, try to get a record deal. Instead, we kind of did it backwards. We moved to Nashville and I kind of had a career and then, uh, and then we decided uh, in our late forties to start a band. It's like, what are you thinking? You know.
0: But by that point, you know, you'd learned everything you'd all the all the ins and outs of the music industry, the stuff that works, the stuff that doesn't work. You know how to how to deal with people in it because you know that's sometimes yeah. the hardest part. Um, so I feel like by the time you guys kind of came around to Lost Hollow, you had a wealth of information to support you kind of launching that project.
1: Yeah, and and like I said, I've played on so many. I, I think I sat down and tried to figure it out one day, and somewhere between seven and 10,000 sessions, Some there's wow. a number somewhere in there in my career. And so, you know, you figure on a master session, two songs a session, and on a demo session, five songs a session. So you figure three and a half songs <clears throat> average a session, that's like 35,000 songs.
0: That's a whole, whole lot of songs.
1: So by the time we started our band, it's like, okay, I'm working every day at the top, top, top level. Mm-hmm. I know where this music has got to be. And so that's why we, we really are fastidious to, to make this music as, as great as we can make it. So and I I think it's pretty dang good.
0: So. You know what? I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Go definitely go check it out. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw links in for Lost Hollow as well. Um, it's very upbeat. Like, it's so nice to listen to your music. Like, you can just doesn't matter what else you got going on. Like well, we, you know you can kind of find your little happy place. Yeah,
1: we in your music and I love that. We uh, we had a fan quote which which we've we've used. Um. Uh, one of the fans tweeted one time he said, "Oh my gosh, you guys are like the love child of Fleetwood Mac and Civil Wars." I'm like, "Can I use that as a quote?" But I see it. I see it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh that's really what we we're, we we're, we're trying to uh, and the one thing that we do when we play live, uh we make people cry. People come up and they say, "You made me cry." And I'm like, "Great, we did our job." Right?
0: Success. That's as yeah. that a show well done. Yeah. Um I mean, and you've got Obviously, you're still touring. You've got dates. Um, so go check them out. Go look a little more into Tommy. Um, you know, find out. Just delve into all the stuff you've played in. Um, it is... It's so nice. Like I say, as we kind of started the, started the episode, that people don't really see what goes on behind the scenes. You know, and all these hit songs from the Lee Bryce stuff to touring with Reba, you know, that... And especially drummers, you know. Unfortunately, drummers kind of tend to be the people in the band that you know you don't move, you can't go anywhere, so you're mm-hmm. sitting at the back, and and people tend to just kind of forget there's other people other than the artist they've paid to see. So, like, it's I, I love hearing those stories behind and how everything comes together, and you know, without you and the other um, drummers. Well, m- most school, of the
1: stories I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Matt McClure tells a story about hard to love, that I. When he told it, there was like a fragment of a memory of it, but it was like, I don't remember that. I kind of remember that. So, and he said, uh, so we cut, uh, we did a double session f- for Lee. We were at Oceanway. And and the same session we cut, uh, I Drive Your Truck as well. And um, so, Hard to Love was the last song we were, we were cutting, and it was getting late. And some guys had six o'clock, and so we, were, we were done at five. And the, so the writer, John Osher, John was, he was also the A&R guy at the label. And he, he was like, we gotta get the song, we gotta get the song. And so he's pacing back and forth and we're trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And sometimes when people write a song, they write it from this angle and sometimes when you hear it as a new listener, I've always just had, had an, an ability to hear a song, and I, I call it song whispering, look at a song and, and tell you what's wrong with it. You know, okay, this is this is in the wrong spot. You really need to flip this around. Um, this is too long. The intro is too long. You're, you're doing too many courses at the end, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you flip yeah. stuff around and people kind of go, gung. So the other thing that i've always been able to do is is strip away a work tape and and get kind of get the cadence of the vocal in my in my brain and then the feel that they're going after sometimes you know occasionally will be wrong and it, and it will be fighting the cadence of that vocal so it wasn't it what it just wasn't happening and lee apparently hated it um uh, And, and, and we were getting really close to five o'clock. It was like maybe like 20 till or something like that. And Matt was getting real frustrated. And I think, I think Matt finally went, guys, can we just just take a five minute break? And we didn't have a five minute window to take. So, but I I started singing this thing and, and it was a, it was a completely different feel than, uh, it was more like a really aggressive, almost like a rock and roll feel and so I, I went over to my snare box and I pulled out this, I call it my gushy snare. I said, Matt, come here. And uh, I said, what if the feel is like this? And his eyes got that big and he went, guys, sit back down. We got it. Get, get back in under your headphones. And I think we cut it in one take. And it was a massive hit.
0: It, yeah, that was. I mean, that's that's
1: amazing. Yeah. So, and, and honestly, I didn't walk around going, you know, I fixed hard to love it. I forgot. I literally (laughs) forgot because the next day I'm like somewhere else, you know, trying to get there and, you know, thinking about that. And, and then the next day and after a while it just gets washed out. Right. And so I was working at Matt's literally, this was literally about three years ago. And he goes, you do remember the story about that song? And I went, no.
0: (laughs) What did I do? What did I do again?
1: (laughs) He said, "Oh," and he told me the song, and I was like, "Cool." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there are. There's tons of stuff. That is, I guess it all just kind of. I've probably it forgotten in, most right? of it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and chatting. This is a whole new venture. Um, so this is sort this drop around like January yeah, time, I either end wait. of December, January. Let me know, and sh- I'll share it. Push in, but. Good. Thank you so much. Good luck, yes. Everyone, Tommy Harden, go check him out. Lost Hollow, take a listen to that music. Again, I'm going to put links in descriptions everywhere so people can get out, they can follow you and see your journey, see what's going on. Uh, but until next time, thank you so much. Thank you. So I
1: love. I love
0: it. <laughs> that was great. I love it. Recorded at 2300 Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Original theme music by Gary Wood.